Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Stephen and I'm back on this week's New Statesman podcast. Helen and I discuss Labour's summer campaign, the silence of Big Ben and whether or not Game of Thrones has jumped the shark. Stephen, you're back. It's very exciting. How was your holiday? It was wonderful. It was it was very restful, other than the fact that I was navigating on the wrong side of the road. And it turns out that while I maybe once knew lefts and rights, I now know which side of the car I'm on. And I believe that I'm on the left side of the car, which is obviously not true when you're in a car in Europe. Do but you drive? No. See, this is, yeah, exactly. You're the non-driving half of a partnership, which means that you are, A, a, a cast in the role of navigator and B, cast in the role of someone who's not really pulling their weight on holiday. I know this pain well. What I don't understand is why can't, I can't drive because I grew up in London, right? Mm-hmm. Where the only person I know growing up with who learned to drive, learned to drive because... They were he, a getaway driver. No, sadly, oh. nothing that cool. He just drives in his dad's, like, building company in oh. a van. You lived in, you know, a nowhere place. Whoa, 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 cowboy. Well, yeah, but okay, so I grew up in Worcester, but I lived 50 minutes walk from my school and 50 minutes walk from the centre of town. And then I went to University in Oxford where you weren't allowed to keep a car. And then I'm, then I'd had a terrible year where I lived in a tiny village outside Hull in which I became so bored because I couldn't leave it that I learned to cook rabbit and sketched in the churchyard. And then I moved to London. And I never at any point did I have any excess money that I wanted to spend on driving lessons. So now I've got to the age of nearly 34 now without being able to drive. Okay, that's a more plausible, plausible life story. Me. I know, but, I think it's a real problem now. It's, I think it's one of those things. There are two things that I have left in my life that I think will make me feel grown up. And one of them is learning to drive and the second one would be having children. So it's entirely possible I could get to the end of my life without ever, ever feeling like a grown up. Wow, well, on that dark note. Let's move seamlessly onto the Labour Party. <laughs> Talking about things that feel like a grown up. So uh, Jeremy Corbyn's been away on his summer tour, which I feel a bit sorry for him because I think he envisioned sunshine, beaches, ice cream, crowds. And what he's got is kind of overcast weather and not very much publicity for it, right? It really hasn't had a lot of pickup. So the weird thing is the summer tour has, has been successful in the reverse way I thought it would be, which is that Labour haven't filled that many column inches. However, a lot of people are still turning up for his rallies in, in off-season, as mm. it were, which is interesting and impressive, right? Yeah, it, it's one thing to successfully have a rally when you are the President of the United States or when you are a candidate in an active general election. It's interesting, and I think in terms of Labour's 
electoral vitality for them. It's a positive sign that they can still pack out these events five years before. That's the bit where I would raise a note of caution about the idea that, you know, the, the original language was very much predicated on Theresa May's, you know, hasn't got a great deal of legitimacy, I'm the alternative prime minister. That They're going to have to cha- change that up a little bit as it becomes more and more apparent that she's winkled into to Downing Street, I guess. But the other thing I think that's interesting about the kind of language that's been coming out of it is the idea that actually... Uh, you know, we all sort of said, oh, at some point, well, I definitely said, you know, Brexit's going to be a big problem for Labour. But actually, so far, it seems that Jeremy Corbyn's been quite good at any kind of bad Brexit-related economic news, sort of subsuming that into a broader austerity narrative, which is something that he's been heavily pushing already anyway. The thing about the electoral damage to Labour over Brexit, I think it's massively overstated because basically... If People you're... don't vote on hypotheticals, do they? That's yeah, the point. But... They don't say, like, Labour's Brexit would have been worse or just as bad. So they just go, this one that we're having is bad, you're not... Yeah, I also think think the difficulty is is because of what happened in 2015 and even more so in 2017, if you are a Remainer who's angry with Labour, what is the lever you can pull that will do anything to hurt the Labour Party doesn't really exist. The Lib Dems just got turned over in all of the sort of London and Manchester big city seats where they could directly hurt Labour, so it's not an effective lever there. If you are angry about Labour's Brexit stance and you live in, I don't know... Mansfield. Mansfield or Amber Valley or, you know, like a, a marginal Labour Conservative seat, the only way you can punish Labour is by defecting to the Lib Dems, where you get an even more Brexity party in. So first past the post does kind of inoculate them on that front. I think the interesting thing in terms of what Labour hasn't had this summer because no one in the Labour Party thought they wouldn't be having a leadership election, is any kind of big sort of summer thing, right? The well, Tories obviously... The kind of classic have... summer, like, of in self-interrogation and navel-gazing. No, they haven't had a kind of, like, equivalent to the, oh, Venezuela, oh, tuition fees. Now, obviously, that works both ways, because the Tories have had a successful, in inverted commas, summer, in, and they have successfully got a lot of people to talk about, and they've got Labour to respond to their slightly silly stories. I think the big danger for the Conservatives is that the illusion of progress, I think, is probably the most dangerous thing you can have in politics. And it's like we are successfully getting people to talk about issues they do not care about that motivated precisely zero votes at the last election and will motivate precisely zero votes at, at the at the next one. It's a bit like this obsession they, that you see in a lot of conservative press about, oh, how can we get 18 to 24s to vote for them? Actually, 18 to 24s were a big problem in terms of percentage, but actually the, the really worrying sign for them is that 30, 40 something. What is the big problem there? People who ought to be becoming homeowners and therefore becoming more inclined to vote conservative are still in the private rented sector and are therefore more inclined to continue voting Labour. Yeah, I think the conferences are going to be quite interesting this year because my personal belief is that the Conservative Party conference will be bloodier than the Labour one. I think there is a kind of artificial peace reigning in Labour at the moment, which although there are incredibly deep divisions, it's in absolutely no one's interest to have any of the arguments. Yeah, Raff, when he was still writing the politics column, had a good line about leadership speculation. There'll always be chatter about leadership because there are always more egos than there are vacancies at the top. But the big difference is, is when the leader is on the up, it's in everyone's interest who wants to replace him or have a good job under him to move closer towards him, right? When the leader is... On her way down. On her way down, it's in everyone's interest to incline away away from them. So although my guess and my, my very strong 
read of the mood coming out of the leader's office is that Jeremy Corbyn will lead Labour into the next election whenever it will be. Obviously, if you are in your 30s and 40s and you're in the parliamentary party and you're in the shadow cabinet, although you think that's probably likely, you also kind of think, well, if he decides not to, what's the harm in me being well prepared? So there will be an awful lot of speeches which basically go, I, who, do you know what I love, Jeremy? Do you know what I love, the NHS, right? The two guaranteed applause lines at Labour conference this year. There will be a lot of MPs profiling in that way, but obviously that's kind of great for Jeremy Corbyn. The fascinating thing, I think, for Conservative Party conference is every every speech is going to be viewed as a leadership bid, not least because their available alternative leaders are also uninspiring uh, you know, in the in And it's the all going to be like a, a, a commentary on Brexit as well, isn't yeah. it? No one's going to be able to resist sneaking in some line that sort of... And, and I would have thought probably signals there, if they've previously been known as a Remainer, signals their willingness to embrace Brexit, right? There's just going to have to be some of that. If you're Amber Rudd... You're just going to have to give off some very strong signals that you're okay with Brexit. Yeah. But in terms of what's happening at Labour, there was a, a row which maybe you missed when you were in your uh, furline box over the summer about whether or not Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan would be invited to speak. And the, the kind of line that was coming out was actually we want more time for floor debates and, and less time for, for speeches from the top. Now, I can see the point of that because, you know, that the whole point of the Corbyn project has been about restyling it as, a, you know, a grassroots movement and a member-led movement. And, you know, well, Andy Burnham did a more successful job of staying on, on side with Corbyn, but neither of them are natural, enthusiastic Corbynites. So I wouldn't be surprised at all. But what do you think, what other stuff do you think will happen at Labour conference? Well, the, the main quiet divide will be over the various rule changes. Weirdly, the one which people are most excited about, but also the one which is now the most semi-redundant is the lowering of the threshold for the number of MPs you need to nominate them to 5%. It is very finely balanced. What happens a lot basically depends on what the various trade union political directors, when they sit together, will agree and negotiate with one another because how the trade union delegates vote will be decisive. Both sides basically think it's about 50-50, which then means that you hinge on like deals the unions make whether or not one of your delegates gets horrendously hung over and goes missing, whether or not someone who's decided they feel one way about the leadership actually changes their mind, etc. etc. There are lots of, of ways one can lose delegates along the way. But yeah, the big thing is the McDonnell Amendment in terms of its sort of emotional significance for a lot of people on both sides. The reality is because of what's happened because a large chunk of the parliamentary party like the policies, think the politics are electorally toxic, is now like, well, okay, I got that wrong. They're quite happy about it. They will nominate a chosen successor. There are obviously more sort of pure Corbynite MPs in the Commons anyway now. Retirements will mean there'll be even more. So that bit's kind of redundant, but obviously Labour's never let redundancy stand in its way of having a fight before. The, the interesting stuff is the stuff about the future of registered supporters. There's a lot of chatter about a compromise deal where what you would do is you'd have a situation where the, instead of lowering the threshold from 15 to 5%, you'd lower it from 10%, and registered supporters, so the £3 scheme, would be the 20, scrapped. And then later the £25 scheme. I mean, that was the thing, is that that second leadership election provided a huge boost to Labour finances. We were writing stories two years ago about the, you know how the coffers were really empty and actually fighting the 2017 election was going to be tough for them. And it really did help refloat the party quite significantly, having all those £25 supporters. The fascinating thing, I think, about registered supporters is... A lot of the time you have a situation where, like, you know, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan, right? 
the three pound supporters scheme worked right it had basically three aims the first was to get more people into the labor party it unquestionably succeeded at that the second was the the theory uh, advanced by largely by the blairites that if you widened the number of people selecting you got someone who would appeal to more people than you'd get by another way and who might not necessarily be the preferred candidate of people already within the labor establishment and then the third thing what was the third aim of this oh and then the third thing was kind of to dilute the influence of the trade unions over the selection processes after what happened with Ed, when basically it turned out you could recreate the block vote by restricting access to the people in the third part of the college. But the, and mean, it succeeded on all of those those grounds, right? The trade union leaders have, have no control over the process now, basically. It's entirely in the control of, of individual trade union members. Thousands more people joined the Labour Party, and they got someone who, it turned out, had an electoral appeal that most people in the established Labour Party did not appreciate, understand, or would have chosen themselves. Despite this, everyone hates it, right? The left of the party regards it as a Blairite plot. I'm speaking solely of the party's Salariat here. Actually, when you talk to a lot of activists on the left of the party, they quite like it. When you talk to a lot of activists on the right of the party, they quite like it and think we should be going further towards a sort of system of primaries. But in kind of like the the elites of all bits of the party kind of don't like it so but that's about a lack of control isn't it i mean the, the most interesting finding is that you know we had all that rumbling about all oh, these three pounders are the ones who are kind of bringing in somebody that you know they're johnny come ladies but that but corbyn won in the membership too right that actually they didn't distort the result in some kind of crazy way as a load of entryists really at all which was the big fear well i think the fascinating thing is i think that the three pound supporters Obviously, they changed the margin slightly, so they were they were you know probably good for Jeremy Corbyn's sense of self, right? Because he got forty nine point five percent among members in the first round. Obviously, he would have won even with the transfers from people who voted for for Liz Kendall, let alone before you factor in anything else. But it did, I think, change the internal politics for the first year because you remember that meme that did basically take a second leadership election to kill off. Was he only got 49.5% mm. of support from the members? Then he was illegitimate. And then when they did it again properly, mm. he would lose. So I think, weirdly, if, if you hadn't had the three-pound scheme and you just had one member, one vote, I think the internal politics of Labour would be quite different now because people who did a great deal of damage to themselves in terms of their standing with the members would not have done so mm. uh, because they would have been in... Or, you know, or maybe... You know, pe- People in politics always find reasons to, to blame defeat on anyone other than themselves. I have one more question, which is about whether or not you think there'll be any more reshuffleage to come. About you know, We had Owen Smith brought in as Shadow Northern Ireland, which is, by all accounts, a pretty, you know, a, a big olive branch to a, a vanquished rival, and also somebody who's got a lot of experience in what will be a very important brief coming up. Chris Williamson, the like king of the Corbynite new MPs, he won back to a Derby North, is back in. Unfortunately, has already put his foot in it about bloody women-only train carriages. I'm really fascinated as to, like, 
I'm yet to meet someone involved in that first leadership election, apart from apparently Chris Williamson, who thinks that was a good a good moment in the in the life of the campaign. Obviously, it didn't matter because they won by loads. Yeah, of all the rows to bring back, that's really not the one. I mean, I can definitely see there's a point in politics to have a good clarifying row that forces, you know, both Gordon Brown and George Osborne in their own ways always used to do this. You know, they would pick an emblematic issue and force the other side to vote on the other side of it, you know, in an, in an unpopular way. But there's no one really apart from... Chris Williamson on his side in the women-only train carriages, as far as I can see. I mean, certainly what I would think of as the kind of feminist establishment in the Labour Party was incredibly dismissive of it last time, rightly so. It's an idea that says, basically, we're going to shift the kind of responsibility for dealing with the problem of sexual assault onto public transport and to policing women's behaviour, and women need to change their behaviour, which is a completely abhorrent, regressive thing to do. And it becomes a question of, well, why aren't you, why weren't you in the women's carriage then? You know, like, and in the same way that you get the kind of, well, why were you walking alone home at night as if, you shouldn't have the you know the, the right or ability to do that. So I I'm completely baffled by the uh, yeah the revivifying of that row. But who knows? I'm also very baffled by what happened with Sarah Champion and that Sun article. Oh, yeah, so I that was another kind of thing that I've semi missed in my time away. So is there a new Shadow Women and Equalities yet? No, I don't think so. Please write in if if you've heard one sneaked out when I haven't. But I I like to think I keep a relatively close watch on such things but I don't think so so there is an opportunity to bring some I mean Kate Green who did it initially was but then resigned from the Corbyn Chair I think was, was doing a good job so she'd be an option to bring it back well we'll obviously have more to talk about Labour later on in the autumn I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Bong. Steven. No, no, I refuse. Bong. <laughs> I'm just going to bong throughout the segment. You won't know when it's going to happen, but soon. So Big Ben has fallen silent for four years with the exception of New Year's Eve while it is repaired. In a sign, I think, that a large chunk of our political class needs to be turned on and off again. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those weird rows which, again, like the slight weirdness of coming back on holiday and trying to catch up on things. Partly because it's weird when you, like, find things out by, like... Reverse engineering bad Twitter jokes. Yeah, reverse engineering yeah. bad Twitter jokes. And like with Sarah Champion, I kind of found out about the, from that like the fourth day stories of like, no, Sarah Champion, it is racist. Uh, yeah. And you're like, and it was like, what have I missed? It, the, I, my problem with the Big Ben row is it's clouded because it's one, I just think it's a classic example of one of those stories that is a silly, witless thing that everybody gets really upset about. And if you go, this is a complete non-story, people are dying in the Yemen, then people go, oh, sneering at the, the concerns of ordinary voters. Whereas I feel pretty confident if I phone up, like, you know, my mum, who's my focus group of an ordinary voter, given that she's a sort of Worcester woman, she'd be like, I've just completely failed to care about some random bell. Yeah, I think what I find fascinating about it, right, is like, I actually will miss the bongs. Yeah, like, it's Bong. always, I won't miss your bongs. It's always very, you know, exciting and nice when, you know, I'm working in Westminster and you're sitting there typing and the Wi-Fi is terrible, but then the bong happens and you're like, I'm in Parliament. I'm working in Parliament. That's pretty cool. But ultimately, it's one of those weird things where actually it's not a debate, right? You you either turn the bell off for four years and repair it, 
or you have a situation where everyone who works on it will be deafened at the best case scenario or you know could end up being accidentally knocked to the ground or falling quite some way while repairing it and eventually because the building is old and will fall apart if we don't fix it the bell will be silent forever but you've written about this really well in your column because I think that you're right. The whole rest of the parliamentary refurb is basically being kind of dragged along by the fact that MPs don't want to leave. They want it to happen around them. And you just think, I mean, lads, it's like four years. Just get out to the QE2 conference centre. Yes, I know it's not very atmospheric. Yes, you won't. But by the time you get back, it hopefully won't have rats, lice and fire hazards. And bed bugs. Bed bugs. They've literally spent like... More, more than two MPs a year last year on on Deep pest control. It. I mean, it, yeah, it is the the whole thing does feel weirdly juvenile because it, it it is a bit like saying like, oh, you know, we we need to move house because it needs to be fumigated, and like having to like drag the small children out by their feet. Except these people aren't small children; they're fifty something year old legislators. But also, it's that one of those things where it's again, it's like this appeal to know that the the people of Britain really want us, and you're like, no, no, no. Actually, what's happened is that Jacob Rees-Mogg, you've plotted and schemed, and now got yourself quite a deep decent office and you're worried that like when you come back it's going to have like you know it's going to look like a primary school it's not going to look like you know some jacobite waiting room from 1647 which is a decor that makes you feel at home yeah i haven't casually slagged off blue labor for a while so i'm gonna gonna do that now there's this part of the labor party which it's like they learned about what patriotism ordinary people think from like a children's coloring book missing vital pages so it's like oh you know people are sneering at symbols it's like no 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 i get that it's an important symbol i also understand repair which by the way if you hadn't learned about ordinary people and patriotism from a coloring book you would know that most ordinary people understand repair as well because they have to do it quite a lot themselves in their lives everyone in the world it turns out other than tory mps and a certain type of chin stroking blue labor thinker exactly, understa- understands their, the concept of has had their plumbing yeah break yeah exactly yeah, just to get like, someone to fix like, it you just like, well they haven't been able to use their boiler for three days in the winter yeah yeah, yeah Theresa may saying surely it can't be right for it to fall silent it's just like it's like so did you become an expert on bell repair while you were away in like i don't know mauritius or whatever improbable place you went yeah, on holiday that, i can't remember the Swiss Alps, since she what I liked about that is that it was a classic Theresa May quote as well, which was a bit like complete like passerby, like surely it can't be right. And you're like, I don't know. If only there was someone whose job it was to make you know the ultimate executive decisions in the land, Theresa. Like, if you really, really cared about this, you have the authority to stop it. But instead of going, why? Why something might be done? Something should be done. And I will do it. Yeah, I think also like it is actually more acceptable for me to say I will miss the old bong in my workplace. Right? That is actually. Don't do it. Just don't. <laughs> uh, just don't. I'm just. I've had enough of your 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 thing. Like, just no. It's okay for me to go. Yeah, I will miss the sound of the clock. Right. Yes. If I'm an MP on the actual building committee, like Tom Brake, who decided I don't know that he was feeling especially renter quotey this week. Actually, I don't get to go. Oh yeah, it's shocking. Your job as a politician is sometimes to explain to people why you've done things it's not to like hang out the building committee and the repair people out to bong out to bong indeed yeah it does set my teeth on edge this kind of way that she kind of was like oh i'm a content oh this can't be right and it's like well it, it is right your job is to explain why it's right and not to kind of like throw your hands in the air and go oh is there some way then we can have people working on it 
while an ancient bell is still ringing but in I there. But I feel like there's a, like a lost art now that's happened. So Mark Damazer, who's now the Master of Peter's College, used to be at the BBC, wrote a piece for us about tuition fees. And he had a quite a long quote in it from the, I think, Newsnight special, where Tony Blair had an argument with a trainee doctor about fees. And it's quite a famous clip. You can go and look it up. And she said, you know, why am I having to pay? Why am I having to get this mountain of debt? And he said, well, look, at the, at the moment, as it is, that the state is paying for five sixths of your tuition, but we think it's not fair to ask the dustman who doesn't benefit from university tuition or somebody who goes back to learn a skill later in their life or under fives who also vitally need investment that they should have to pay this extra bit. And she said, yeah, but the dustman will be very glad to me, you know, when he needs a doctor. And, and then he goes back and he patiently kind of explains like, you know, yes, we will give you some money towards this, but we feel it's only fair that, you know, that you make this contribution too. And what he doesn't do is what I suspect Theresa May would do in that situation which is panic and then flounder and then panda and that's sort yeah. of, uh, you know what I mean is all it... respond with a I mean okay the magic money tree thing is, is is nonsense economics but the weird thing about that awful clip of her saying to like a nurse well you know there isn't a magic money tree love I have to scrimp and save too was then if you want to do the argument then like oh the bond market so you know if, if we if there is a x percent of GDP right make yeah like you have to actually make an argument yeah. like say someone i disagree with you and here are my here, x y and z are my reasons for disagree with you not just dismiss them with a soundbite or pander to them which are the two options that are currently presenting itself and i think the, the big ben row is a classic example of that i did actually really like um jez we can's quote on it where he was just like i'll miss it but probably the bells need to be repaired though i kind of trust the works team to do the right job which I just think is just like that really is what you ought to say as the leader of a political party, and even more so when you are the literal prime minister. And for this week's Head to Head... We ask the question, is Game of Thrones any good anymore? So this will be a spoilery discussion if you're... Honestly, if you care enough about Game of Thrones to care about spoilers and you haven't yet watched the last episode, then who even are you, frankly? So where we're at is that Daenerys's third dragon has become an ice dragon in one of the most appallingly signalled scenes ever in TV. As I went, I bet the last frame of this is just its eye opening and it's got a blue eye, you know, and then... Fair enough. Plunk. There came the blue eye. Jon Snow is alive, but a bit chilly. And one of her dragons is now like a, a bad dragon. Hey, mate, you haven't watched the last episode. I, I don't actually watch it. I solely follow it through Anna's recaps. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there was a sort of bad, terrible stag do that went north of the wall with a load of men basically having some like banterous chats and then they got attacked by the army of the dead retreated to a small icy island in the middle of it and then some complicated thing where gendry who was apparently oh yeah so all of this was in anna's yeah yeah, gets sent back anyway so daenerys turned up with her dragons and then the night king threw a spear into one of the dragons and then the dragon at the last scene of the episode was the army of the dead who had forged an awful lot of chains which must be really bad when fire is bad for them because how do they make that foundry work and they pulled the dragon out of the lake, and it's now an ice dragon. So presumably also it breathes ice, which is even more improbable than breathing fire as a chemical process. But the dragon is is, is a bad dragon? Bad dragon. Okay. It's a bad ice. It's like a white walker, but in dragon form. Yeah, so I kind of took took the view that I, I read the books. Because when I worked as a bookseller, I would always read basically any book that I'd sold more than 100 copies of, just because you kind of feel like, other than self-help. Because self-help, you already feel a bit guilty about selling it, because you know it's not actually going to help. And if you read it... <laughs> it's not going to help you either. If you read it, you feel even more 
even more guilty, right? Because, you know, if when someone comes into your bookshop and buys Think Yourself Rich and they go, oh, do you think this one is any good? They're going, I don't know, I've never read it, it could be already felt to me like right at the outer limit of acceptable morality well right? i've read it and i'm still working here so really judge for yourself at the point that you've read it yourself you at that point have to just be like no please don't spend 11.99 on a book called think yourself rich like i don't literally yeah. spend it on anything else um but i i read all of the books i i, I like them a great deal but he's clearly not going to finish them but i can't be bothered to go to the start of the show to to find out what the differences are so I just enjoy them vicariously through Anna's very funny write-up. I like the fact that he has basically decided that doing the books is a bit too much work and he's got enough money now and he's sort of just like, might as well just let the TV series sort it all out for him. I think that's an, an admirable attitude to productivity from him then. And, and yeah, I did think in the early days they were quite interesting in terms of their politics. They've become less so. I mean, now it's just quite good schlocky television really which i quite enjoy coming home because twin peaks is just too i just can't even with i mean there was a whole episode that was just all about an atom bomb and people floating in the air and i just don't even i mean i yeah so that's my game of thrones at least has people saying human dialogue and and that's all i really kind of hope for can i tell you about baby driver though because i have to get it off my chest even it's the word you know my going head to head about whether or not game of thrones was was bad or not okay you, you, but haven't we concluded that which is that I say yes it is but I'm still watching it and you say you don't know well, <laughs> whether what? or not it is because you haven't watched it I mean you know being a, a a man and a member of the commentary I've never allowed ignorance to get in the way of having an opinion before and I don't intend to start now um, but my impression from some of the complaints and from the characters who I hadn't realised aren't in the show but are in the book is I think that, that might be increasing the level of artificial stupidity characters have to be displaying in order to service the overarching plot so for example Aya, Aya this is the other weird thing about the TV show is learning the characters who I had a very confident opinion about how their name was pronounced I'm just completely wrong about uh, yeah, they're having they're having a kind of long ongoing argument, um, stoked by Littlefinger, and, and my... not helped by the fact that presumably when they were both cast many many millions of years ago, they were presumably looked quite physically similar, and now one of them's seven foot three and the other one's five foot one. The slightly weird thing about that is is obviously Aya did see Sansa cry when her dad, so that doesn't really work. But in the books, there's another character who's like the weird resurrected revenge zombie of their mother, who I assume would be doing some of the things. I did not know about the revenge zombie mother. That's because I know there's a, another revenge zombie that's in Cersei's. I mean, he uh, literally hasn't written like a book for so long that I'm fairly certain there may have been a Labour government during the last one. <laughs> so I just feel you can't legitimately complain about spoilers from like. No, no, no. I'm the, not. Spo- I'm just. Yeah. I'm just like that's that would have that would change the what's happening currently at Winterfell quite. Yeah. Strongly, were there a revenge zombie mother wandering so, around? So I do think some of the things that people are angry about online, and I can see why they would be, and some of the artificial stupidity that Anna talks about is probably a result of some of the branches but that they've. Aren't you just enjoying it? Because as people keep getting very upset about, like, oh, the wall is magic. Oh, but if it's touched the raven, then something or other. And I just think this is probably how other people who watch us having arguments about the Labour Party feel. You just go, oh, the McDonald's moment. Everyone's incredibly furious about something that you have no idea what it is. I think that's a really useful experience to see that happening in, to, to other people, to remind you that your own arguments are often extremely petty. Deep. Deep. P.S. Baby Driver is terrible.
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. We're produced by Caroline Crampton and recorded by India Bork. Our music is Devil by the Devil by Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. If you've been enjoying the New Statesman podcast, make sure to subscribe to the New Statesman magazine. And if you subscribe already, either take out a second one or recommend it to a friend. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.